Hello, and welcome to Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College thesis process and experience. I'm your producer, Albert Corrales, and today you'll hear host Amelie Andreas talk with Reed psychology grad Rishi Krishnamurthy about his thesis on the effects of ideology and graph literacy on the interpretation of climate change data. Rishi, why do some people look at the same graphs as me and still not think climate change should be concerning? Hello, I'm Rishi Krishnamurthy. I'm from Seattle, Washington. I'm a senior psych major, and the title of my thesis is Overt Attention and Cognitive Ability Explain Climate Graph Interpretation. So my research was looking at what sort of explains people's interpretations of graphs of climate change data, because people tend to interpret these graphs, like if you just think about a graph that shows, I don't know, like CO2 emissions over time or something, people who have better numerical reasoning ability, so, you know, people who are better at, you know, interpreting probabilities, working with proportions, Mm -hmm. doing, you know, conversions from like percent to decimal to fraction and like, and back, Mm -hmm. they tend to be better at interpreting these graphs. And then people who have what we call graph literacy, better graph literacy. So, you know, understanding what the axes means, understanding that like any point on a line graph has one X value and one Y value, understanding other graphical conventions like, you know, like Mm -hmm. slope, things like that. People who are better at that tend to be better at interpreting these graphs in general. Mm -hmm. But Climate change is also, you know, at least in the, especially in the U.S., is a super controversial topic. And as it turns out, in the U.S., more than a lot of other Western countries. Mm. And so I was interested in whether sort of people who were ideologically motivated not to believe that climate change was happening, which is so in general, more conservative people mm-hmm. would be less accurate when interpreting climate graphs, which oh. show that climate change is happening. I see. So we already know that a couple of these factors you've just described impact people's ability to look at graphs. And you're seeing if there's this other factor of political alignment that also affects people's ability to interpret these graphs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one thing that was really important for me and my advisor when choosing where to go with thesis is that Mm -hmm. we weren't just asking this question out of nowhere, right? So Mm -hmm. other research has looked at this before, like, is there an ideological difference in how people interpret these graphs? But this and a lot of other studies, like this is a common pattern in studies that say that X plays a role in Y, is that necessarily test other explanations Mm -hmm. for why that difference might be there, right? So they found that Republicans were less accurate than Democrats when when interpreting these graphs. And what they were being asked to do was to look at a line graph of climate change over time and make a forecast about what would happen in the future. And basically, Republicans were less accurate overall than Democrats. And the authors argued that that was like an ideological Mm -hmm. bias, but they didn't test if numerical reasoning or graph literacy or other sort of forms of cognitive ability could explain what they were attributing to ideology. So you have to test those alternatives, right? Yeah, exactly. Like a correlation versus causation type argument. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't want to bore folks too much with the methodological details, but (laughs) yeah, we basically ended up controlling for a bunch of other stuff and then seeing if, you know, 
after controlling for cognitive ability, mm -hmm. would ideology still be related to the accuracy of people's interpretations? Mm, so that's how you were like taking this further from other research that's been done in similar topics in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we really focused on the replication and extension aspect of the study. Mm -hmm. So we tried to be as faithful to these previous studies as we could be, you know, in terms of the materials we use, the graphs that we showed people, and in terms of how long people had to look at them and respond to them. Because the last thing you want mm -hmm. is to get some result and then worry about, oh, was it because the relationship we're actually studying is different from what the original authors proposed? Or is it because of some tiny thing in the design that casts doubt on whatever it is you've done? What got you interested in thesising on climate change? I think for me, I'm very lucky to be able to say this having lived in Washington all my life, but climate change wasn't super sort of personally salient to me mm -hmm. until the summer of 2020 when in Portland, I think a lot of readies will remember this, the air quality got really, really bad. I mean, it was like unsafe for anyone to go outside for almost any amount of time. And mm -hmm. so that kind of brought it really, really close to home. And it got me thinking about sort of the ideological divide around climate change, because even mm -hmm. faced with sort of local challenges like this, a lot of people are still really skeptical that climate change is happening or humans are causing it. And I wondered if we start just from like the most naive perspective of, oh, all of this good data is out there. Mm -hmm. All of these clear data visualizations are out there showing climate change is happening. So why is it that they work more or less effectively mm -hmm. on people who do or don't want to believe mm. what they're showing? Could it be that perfectly qualified people who are familiar with what graphs and with what data show just don't trust it because of the subject matter? Mm -hmm. Like, is that really what's going yeah. on? Thinking about what's happening in between the data and these decision-making processes. So yeah, going back even further, how did you get interested in psychology as a field? Like, did you come to read knowing that this was what you'd be majoring in or was it more of a process? So I lucked out. My, my story about getting interested in psychology is when I was in high school, I found an AP psych textbook in the Lost and Found and then <laughs> I signed up for the class. And it was one of the only classes I really enjoyed in high school. So I was pretty set on it going to read mm -hmm. and I never really regretted my choice. I think the psych program at Reed is really, really unique because you get to try a bunch of different sub-disciplines of psychology if you really want mm -hmm. to. But if you want to stay a generalist, you absolutely can. But if you decide that there's something that you're really passionate about some specific mm -hmm. topic or some professor's research, you can decide that you really want to take more of their classes or do research with them. Mm -hmm. And I think Psych at Reed is also really easily supplemented by classes in other majors, like taking sociology, taking statistics, taking anthropology. All of these things kind of make Psych more interesting because you can get fresh perspective on it. Did you end up taking more of the generalist path or the more of the specialist path? I ended up taking, I think, more of a specialist path. My thesis advisor was Kevin Holmes, mm -hmm. who's a cognitive psychologist who studies mostly language cognition and social cognition. And so I ended up taking basically all of the classes that he was offering and doing summer research with mm -hmm. him. And so 
I was really fortunate that by the time I was choosing a thesis advisor, I already felt like I had a natural fit. Mm -hmm. What did your process look like as you were going through this thesis? Like, it seems like you might've had some kind of survey sent out. Was there a lot of book research, a lot of talking to people? Yeah. So my process was actually a lot more, like you were saying, survey focused and data focused than it was writing focused. Mm -hmm. We ended up doing two different studies, Mm -hmm. but basically the first semester was doing a little bit of preliminary research, but primarily doing a ton of study design and launching the study, getting data back and doing data analysis. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a survey that folks at Reed would have seen because since we were looking for ideological diversity. Mm-hmm. Not, Reed's uh, not necessarily the place for that. Uh, yeah, no, there, there's no uh, Reed Young Republicans Club. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we used a online crowdsourcing platform where people mm. do these little tasks. It's called Amazon Mechanical Turk mm, or yeah. MTurk. I mean, it's a, it's a really common thing in psych. And across the two studies, we recruited, I think, 340 people. Wow. So pretty, pretty decent sample. I had always been pretty interested in data Mm -hmm. analysis. And so I had taken classes and done internships that helped prepare me for that. But there are definitely a couple of things that you don't expect at all when you're doing them by yourself for the first time. Mm -hmm. Because I think no matter how much technical experience you think you have beforehand, Mm -hmm. when you're the only person who you have to answer to for the quality of the work and analysis choices that you're making, it is very different. And there are technical things, certain statistical tests I was running for the first time. And that requires you to do different things in the software. I absolutely would recommend for anyone who's doing a data analysis thesis at Reed, RStudio is your friend. Reed has its own dedicated RStudio server. And so you have a ton of space. You can do a lot of computationally intensive stuff that you might not be able to handle on your own machine. And you can learn through taking intro stats at Reed, which has no prereqs. And that was seriously a godsend for me. I would not have been able to do it in like just Excel or something. Did you have any unexpected challenges when you were working on your thesis? The challenge that most comes to mind is that for the first study, the hypothesis we were testing was that we were interested in whether this ideological difference in the accuracy of people's interpretations was there. But we also wanted to see how attentive people were to these graphs just in general, if they were actually picking out the key features in the graphs, right? Mm -hmm. Based on previous theory about what's relevant when you look at a line graph, we were interested in whether people who were shown eight graphs and after each graph, they had the opportunity to give a written description of what they'd seen. Mm -hmm. In their descriptions, I coded all those responses for whether they mentioned the X and Y axis names, Mm -hmm. the overall trend in the data, and if they mentioned the variability. Mm -hmm. Because The trend is sort of the main message of the graph. It shows sort of the general relationship between the variables, but uh, the variability, like all the kind of noise around the trend in the data, Mm -hmm. it's useful, it's meaningful, but if you focus too much on it, you can miss the main message of the graph. So people who mention variability might say something like, oh, the relationship seems really unstable or it's kind of going up and down Mm -hmm. over time. Past work has shown that people are not really that attentive to trends or variability, and they're attentive to them at about equal and low rates, which is kind of disheartening. Mm -hmm. That study was in a sample of college students, so it suggested that even viewers who probably knew how to interpret line graphs 
weren't actually attentive to the relevant features. Mm. I coded all these descriptions and I thought I found something novel at first. What we had found was that people mentioned the X and Y variable super often, mm-hmm. which great, that was what was shown in the original study. But we also found that it trend way more than mm-hmm. variability, which was really surprising and sort of, I don't know, gave me hope about how people read these graphs because it suggested that they actually were picking up on the message that was trying to be conveyed. But it turns out that when you have qualitative data and you code it for the content of a textual response or something, people don't really want to just take your word for it. You need to have multiple coders for a data set. You need to have like a second person go through and read the descriptions and say, okay, did it really mention those things? Or was, you know, Rishi just, you know, misreading it the first time? (laughs) And so I had to send part of the data to someone else so they could code it. And then they sent it back to me. And I had to calculate this statistic called inter-rater agreement, which measures how closely we agreed with one another on Mm -hmm. whether or not people's descriptions mentioned certain things or not. And so... It was a ton of data to run this test on. And I ended up having to do actually a lot of like programming stuff I'd never Mm -hmm. done before. And it was funny because it's like this tiny test that's always an afterthought Mm -hmm. when you read about it in a paper. And it was far more work than some other stuff in the paper that I spend way more time writing about. Mm -hmm. It's always surprising that, you know, one sentence of a paper can be hours and hours of work. And then sometimes whole paragraphs will just come out in that same amount of time. So you never know, basically. That's such an interesting dynamic. So I'm like, you know, on the edge of my seat now. Did you guys agree? Was it statistically significant? Yes. So I was really, really happy to find that. (laughs) Oh, thank God. (laughs) Yeah, we were in almost perfect agreement. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. It's kind of uncanny, actually, because you are coding this data as the person who has designed the survey and you think you have a certain idea of what to look for in your head. And mm-hmm. so when I sent this data out, I was worried like, oh no, do I have a really weird and specific way of thinking about these responses? Will she have a different perspective on it? Will I have to redo my entire thing? But it turns out we were both mm-hmm. getting at the same thing, which is really exciting. I mean, <laughs> just a relief. Yeah, no kidding. It would be such a nightmare to... to put all these hours into that one sentence and it's not even the sentence that you wanted to hear. I mean, professors always love to tell me data is data, even if it's not saying what you wanted it to say. That was kind of the story with the second study Mm. where we found the ideological difference that we were hypothesizing was there, but with a caveat. Basically what happened is the way we tested whether there were ideological differences was to have participants view these graphs and make predictions about what the future value would be. And all these graphs were climate change related, Mm -hmm. right? So a future value is something like the sea level or how much like forest will be in a country in a certain year. And so they're making these predictions of things that haven't happened yet. Mm -hmm. So it's up to their discretion whether they make a prediction that's in line with the trend. So let's say forest area is generally going down. Mm-hmm. You know, if I if data go up to 2021 and I ask you what's going to happen in 2034, like how much forest will be left, you would probably be inclined to say 
that there's going to be much less forest in 2034 than there was in 2021. Mm -hmm. And your prediction will be in the right direction, but it won't be perfectly accurate. And I mean, no one's will be, right? So for each person, we were calculating Mm -hmm. how accurate they were by taking the value they typed in minus this true value that was based on if you take the linear trend line for the data and extrapolate it all the way to the year that we were asking the people to predict for, that difference is how much people were off by, which is error. Mm, And so mm -hmm. in the first study, we found that ideology didn't predict this dependent variable at all. We thought, oh, well, looking at this, the ideology thing is probably dead in the water, right? We'll include it in study two just for posterity, but Mm -hmm. we kind of assumed because of study one that ideology was unrelated to how accurate people were on these graphs. And instead, people who mentioned trend more often were more accurate, and people who mentioned variability more often were less accurate. And so we thought, okay, the only thing that's going to matter is the parts of the graph that people are looking at, Mm -hmm. and there isn't really a story about ideological differences here. But that's not what we found in study two. In study two, we did find an ideological difference. Wow. That's such a roller coaster. So just to like recap, what are the main differences between study one and study two? The main difference between study one and study two is that in study one, people would see a graph, then they would type a description of Mm -hmm. the graph, and then they would predict like that future value. And in study two, what would happen is Mm -hmm. people would view one of these climate graphs, and then they would view another graph, and they would be asked if the second graph was the same or as or different from the first graph. Mm-hmm. And that second graph, which is called the test graph, could differ from the initial graph in four different ways. It could either be completely the same. It could have a different slope. It could have different variability. So like, you know, more sort of up and down, like mm-hmm. instability, or it could be just an entirely different <laughs> graph. This is basically, you can think of it as replacing the description task from study one, because Mm -hmm. the description task in study one is what we call a high level measure of attention. Mm -hmm. You're using language to boil down what you're seeing, but Mm. just making the judgment of whether a second graph is the same as or different from the first graph is a low level measure of attention Mm -hmm. because all it asks you to do, like say the slope is different. You don't have to know anything about what the graph is showing to answer that correctly, you just need to know if like the angle of a line has changed. Wow. Yeah. So that was the difference in study two. And I think the main, the main takeaway from study two was this ideological difference. So was that what you were expecting with conservative survey takers showing a higher margin of error than less conservative survey takers? Yeah. So the relationship was in the direction that we expected. And it's kind of weird because when you think about it, we basically administered the same task two times, Mm -hmm. right? If you find it in one study, but not another, it makes you wonder if it's just a fluke, right? But Mm. what I ended up arguing, and you can totally argue with this, but study one was a sample of 95 people Mm -hmm. and study two was a sample of 239. So with more people, you're able to detect these relationships more effectively and more often. So we're thinking it might have been more of a sample size thing than an effect of what the secondary task was. Yeah, absolutely. Because even in study one, the relationship was close to being significant, Mm -hmm. but 
it didn't quite get there. We report results as significant, right? I keep saying that, Mm -hmm. oh, ideology was a significant predictor of error. And what that means is that the relationship between ideology and error was so strong that it would be extremely unlikely to observe that strong of a relationship Mm -hmm. if that relationship were not really there. And you can quantify how unlikely you want things to be. And if it's unlikely enough, you interpret it as it not happening by chance and interpret it as a genuine relationship being there. Mm -hmm. Common rule of thumb for this is 5%. Mm -hmm. So if there's less than a 5% chance of the observed relationship being this strong, assuming that the true relationship isn't really there, then you conclude that the relationship actually is there. It allowed us to show that more conservative participants were making more error on average. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, when you're looking at at two, a group of 200 people, like you can just pick the, weirdly pick the 200 people that just don't follow what rest of society is doing. So that's really helpful in, in thinking about like, okay, so these 200 people are thinking in this way. What are like all conservatives everywhere thinking and how much information can we get from this group of 200 people? Right, right. Absolutely. And I mean, we sampled from Amazon Mechanical Turk because we wanted a more representative sample and median age was in, I think, the late 20s and Mm -hmm. early 30s across the two studies. We were worried about getting, you know, a sample that's too old or too young because those things matter for ideology and for like focus on climate change as well. Mm -hmm. But we got a reasonably young sample, but not sort of too young. And then ideologically, it was really diverse too. Mm -hmm. But one thing that we didn't get, and this is something that has been studied by a lot of other people, was it wasn't a very racially diverse sample. Ah, yeah. Yeah. And that's just kind of the way it goes on Amazon MTurk. There tend to be a lot of white participants. There's a lot of work on the relationship between race and environmentalism that I was not able Mm -hmm. to draw on. But I do think that's one limitation that I would have loved to go back and look at. Is this something that you see yourself continuing looking at in some way, shape, or form after read? Right, right. I've been talking to my thesis advisor about this, and we're going to look at trying to publish some part of this work. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, I really hope it works out because I think more than the idea that it's cool to have a publication or whatever is that this responds to other research Mm -hmm. articles that were written by real researchers. And Mm -hmm. It would be really exciting to say, hey, the finding about what part of graph people are looking at held up in part, but the ideological difference that was in this other study is a little more complicated than just that. Because I I didn't mention this earlier, but the ideological difference we found in study two exists when you only consider ideology and error, right? Mm -hmm. Just when you kind of correlate them. But when you control for other variables, when you control for people's numerical Mm. reasoning ability, when you control for their graph literacy, ideology is no longer a significant predictor of error. That ideological difference exists if you don't consider people's general math ability Mm. and general familiarity with graphs. So we have to be, I think, a little careful saying that, oh, Mm. you know, conservatives are misreading the data because they're conservative. That's not what we found. And I think Mm -hmm. my my interest in thesis and beyond isn't like 
making data like accessible and interesting to everybody. Yeah. And ideological differences in how people read data and read graphs can be splashy, but we should be careful to not imply that people are incapable of interpreting things properly that they disagree with just because it disagrees with their ideology. Yeah. And that's actually like so much more uplifting to hear than like, you know, ah, their brains are just different. Like, because that's something actionable, you know, graph comprehension and numerical literacy are things that like we can target in schools and actually maybe move towards finding more common ground on this issue, which that's really cool to hear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of the research in this area actually is in education. Mm -hmm. I didn't go into this thinking of myself as an educational psychology person at all. <laughs> it was really exciting to see that a lot of people are studying this in order to make kids more like conscientious consumers of information and help them actually mm -hmm. see things in the world and realize that even if they disagree with them, that they're still happening and that you have to deal with them, even if people you agree with might tell you that they're fake or overblown. Like you have to trust that you have the like numer numerical reasoning ability and the graph literacy ability to see things as they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Make decisions for yourself. It's always awesome to see a thesis that has these potential ramifications in the real world. Do you have any advice for either, you know, someone who's starting off their read experience, maybe someone who's starting off their thesis next year, or is, you know, deciding whether or not to take intro stats next semester? <laughs> My advice for someone starting thesis, if you have a data-heavy thesis, if you have surveys, or maybe if you're in some sort of model building mm -hmm. situation or some sort of programming situation where that's the main focus of what you have to do, don't worry if it feels like you're not actually writing in the thesis document, mm -hmm. if you don't feel like you have much of an intro, or if you don't feel well-read enough in your topic, because you're not necessarily told this up front, but it's expected to be that way for you. You're expected to spend a lot of time with your data and with your code and with your surveys. Mm -hmm. And so even if your peers are doing a ton of reading and writing because they're in majors that demand that, you're not doing something wrong if you don't have a ton written, even you know, going into third quarter or fourth quarter or something. Mm -hmm. like It'll all come together. Your workflow is just different. So don't worry about that. Yeah, sometimes you need to spend days doing statistics just to write one very, very important line in your <laughs> final paper. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Rishi, for coming on our little podcast. And it sounds like you have very exciting things ahead of you and a very exciting thesis behind you. Thank you so much, Emily. Thanks so much, Rishi. Next time I'm tasked with changing someone's mind on climate change, I'll spend more time telling them about trend lines and less time on the evils of the fossil fuel industry. Who knows, so many problems can be solved with a better handle on linear regression. I hope you'll join us again to hear more from students and alumni about what it means to burn your draft. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, check out our Twitter and Facebook pages, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Albert Corellis. Your lovely host today was Reed student Amelie Andreas. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from Joe Janiga. Our project manager is Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlick and Lillian Pham. 
This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.